Well, what do you do when you find yourself in need? When life sort of hits the fan. When things just become a mess. You're in a place that's unplanned and you really, quite frankly, don't know what to expect next. Well, there's a lot of places that one could go. But I'd argue, really, there's kind of just two basic responses, and they just show up in lots of different ways. You can either turn inward, or you can turn outward. Those are really your two options. If you're the kind of person who turns inward, you'll likely find yourself thinking in those six circumstances, okay, I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to pull my bootstraps up. I'm going to make things work. Figure out how to get through this. How to solve these problems that are in front of me. Might throw some money at the problem. Might read some books on how to straighten your own life up. You might read some articles on the internet. Listen to some podcasts. Think about your problem and sort of how to fix it. You've resolved in your mind, I'm never going to let this happen again. We're going to make sure that this gets fixed. Some of you might even be able to say this phrase back to me because you heard it as a kid, but God helps those who help themselves. It's the American way. It's a pretty common instinct in most of us. Self-sufficiency. That's the response that most of us generally are trained to have when we are in need. Turn inward to find your greatest help. Well, the problem with that kind of response is that it's entirely contrary to the way that we're made. We were never meant to be self-sufficient. We're actually very needy creatures. And what I love about this psalm that we're going to find ourselves in this morning is that it comes and upsets and disrupts our self-reliance. It disrupts our self-sufficiency, our tendency to turn inward And instead, it leads us to that better way, to turn outward, to turn outward and upward to God. We're going to watch some stories unfold in Psalm 107. I'd invite you to go ahead and start turning there. But we're going to watch these stories unfold in the psalm about people who are in trouble, and we're going to see where they turn. And when they do turn... And what happens when they turn? What happens to them? The the entire effort and labor of this psalm is to convince you of this truth. That God saves because of His steadfast love. And we give thanks because God saved us. We 
God saves because of his steadfast love, and we give thanks because God saves us. You want to know what we're doing here this morning? With understanding that truth, that the solution to our problems today is not going to be found inside of you. It's not going to be turning inward into your trouble. It's not going to be a pep talk about how you can do this yourself. The whole point of our message this morning is to teach us that we need to turn to God. We need God. Now you might hear that idea and you might think, Johnny, doesn't that sound kind of basic? Isn't that just sort of Christianity 101? I mean, you essentially said the point of the sermon is trust Jesus. Do I really need a sermon to tell me to do that? Well, if you're a Christian, I think most of us this morning would be ready to acknowledge that we believe that truth. We understand it to be true, that God himself is trustworthy. But the issue, I think, is not so much do you think that intellectually, but I bet most of you in this room, again, would say that that's true. But the issue is, do we live like it's true? Do we live as if we truly know that deep down in our bones? That God is worthy of all of our trust. Because when you start to think about when panic shows up in your life and in my life, when we get anxious and worried and stressed, when things aren't going the way that you want them to? Do you try to straighten out the situation yourself? Do you think about hiding when you tend to feel like you've sinned for the thousandth time and you just wonder, if I share this with anybody, are they really going to understand? When you think about all the safety nets that we put in our lives to protect us from actually needing God's help, when you think about all of those things, I think it's safe to say we need this sermon. We need to hear about the trustworthiness of God and why it is that we can give thanks to Him. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Now, I'm likely not going to hit every single verse that's in this psalm, but my goal is that we would get the big picture, the main idea of this passage together. We're going to hit the big movements of the passage. And so we begin in verse 1 of Psalm 107. And it begins sort of with this bold preamble, this, this call to God's people. And it begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you might recognize that phrasing, some of those words in there, that's repeated quite a bit in the Old Testament, specifically those words that are translated together, steadfast love. 
It's a word that's used only to describe the Lord's love for His covenant people. The covenant love of God. It's God's promise-keeping love. It's a special word. It's reserved only for His people. It's His, I'm never going to fail you. You can count on me. I'm going to say that I, I am going to be there when I say I am going to be there kind of love. It's His loving kindness. It's His loyal love, as some translations would put it. And it's specifically a kind of love that He reserves for His people. We see that it's confirmed in verses 2 and 3. It says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. These are God's redeemed people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And what follows after this call that we would say that God's love is good is a series of pictures of the Lord's steadfast love and the way that it plays out. You could sort of read the rest of this psalm sort of like a family photo album. And every page here onward, is highlighting the steadfast love of God. When things go wrong, when we're foolish, when we sin, when we're weak, when we quite frankly just don't know what to do, here is how the steadfast love of God shows up. Or another way to put it, each of these stories answers, why should I trust God? And why can I thank God? What we're going to see is a series of four stories, and these people are in trouble for various reasons. We'll hit three of those reasons. Some, movement one, some are fainting. They're weary in their trouble. Others are foolish. They've made sinful decisions. They have landed them in the hardship that they're in. And then others are fearful. They simply don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed. They're at the end of themselves. Well, what do people do in these circumstances? How do they respond? How does the Lord's love show up for them? So story number one, God's steadfast love and the fainting. God's steadfast love and the fainting. Verse four, some wandered in desert wastes. They found no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry, thirsty, their souls fainted within them. The story begins with a people who are wandering and destitute. They, they lack even basic life necessities. They're wandering in a desert waste. They don't have a city that they can dwell in. We aren't exactly sure how they got there. We aren't told if Bill forgot to charge the GPS. We aren't told if 
you know, somebody held the map upside down and all of Jerusalem, you know, they were trying to go to Jerusalem, but they ended up somewhere in the desert. We aren't told exactly what's going on here. We're just told plainly that it's the case. They're lost, they're wandering, they're in need. Now, I'm not sure how many of us, when we read that, can really feel like we closely identify with lacking so much that we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. Or where our next drink of water is going to be. And I think we can be thankful that many of us have never found ourselves in that kind of circumstance. Now, some of you may have known that. Some of you may have been in that circumstance before. You might even be experiencing that now. But I think something that hits closer to home is this sense of wandering. Not exactly knowing where you're going. Do you feel like you're lost in your career? Do you feel like you're lost in the goals that you've put out for your life? You feel like you're in an unplanned place and circumstances that you never thought you would be in. You feel less stable than you've ever felt before. You thought you'd be married by now. You thought you'd have that degree by now. You thought you'd have children by now. You thought you'd have that house by now. You thought you'd be out of debt by now. You thought you'd be established in that career by now. Or maybe you've gotten all of those things and you still feel like you're wandering. And the question becomes, what do I do now? Well, if you're anything like me, there's an impulse in you, even if you are a Christian, to functionally live like an atheist. What am I going to do? How am I going to figure this problem out? How am I going to solve all of this by myself? Let me check my bank accounts. Let me find some books. Let me do some frantic research. Let me get my planning chart out. Let me download my podcast. And on the outside, we might look like we're simply living wisely. We might look like we're being prudent in our dealings. But on the inside, we're actually just a panicking mess. And it's only until after we've worn ourselves out that we stop and consider, I'm not sure if I've ever asked the Lord for His help. Well, what do these people do here? You know, God's Word records this story for us to instruct us. And look at the next verse, verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble... And he delivered them from their distress. Okay, so what did they do? Well, they brought their need to God. Listen, don't let your trouble 
make you a functional atheist. I think that's a point of this story right here. Don't let your trouble make you an atheist or start acting like one. Are you weary from your trouble this morning? Turn to God. Turn outward and upward and cry to Him. Cry to Him and look at what happens. I love this because we're going to see this four different times where they cry to Him in their trouble and God's response, well, it's not scolding. It's not, well, you've made your bed and now you've got to lay in it. The author doesn't even finish his sentence. They cry to God in their trouble, comma, and He answers them. He answers His people. He delivers them from their distress. He led them by straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. We bring our need to Him. He brings His mercy to us. That's the pattern. It's on repeat through this entire psalm. We bring our need to Him. He brings His mercy to us. The heart of God stands ready to save, ready to help His people, ready to rescue when his people turn up in need, he turns up in mercy. So take a moment and train your hearts in this truth with me this morning. When you are in trouble, when your heart is weary, just because you don't know where to go or where your next step is going to be, don't turn inward. Turn outward. Turn out to the Lord. Turn to Him. Plead for His mercy. When we bring our need, He brings His mercy. That's what happens every time. Every time we bring our need, God brings His mercy. And what happens after that? That equals the proper response, thanksgiving. Verse 8, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Well, what about when the stakes are higher? What about when it's your fault and you know it and you did it willfully? What about when the trouble that's in your life is there because of your own sin? What then? What do you do then? That's what the next two stories are about. Point two, God's steadfast love and the foolish. Verse 11, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. So these are folks who are enslaved, either in themselves or in an actual prison. They're enslaved in some sort of way. In the next story, in verse 17, the people are so afflicted that they've lost their will even to live. They don't want food describes them as near the gates of death. These people are in a bad spot. Affliction, misery, 
chains of iron. Well, why? Why are they there? Verse 11, for they had rebelled against the words of God. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High, and so He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. How did they get there? It wasn't by mere happenstance. It wasn't because somebody held the map upside down. They were there because of their willful sin. They spurned God's word, the counsel of the Most High. They weren't interested. They had the Burger King mentality, I'm going to have it my way. Self-rule, self-willed, self-reliant people. They spurned God's counsel. They did whatever they wanted, and it brought hardship in their life. I want us to pause and see how this story is different than the last one, isn't it? It's a darker story than the last one in many ways. And yet at the same time, I think this is one that people can still identify with if they're honest. You know, it's likely the way that many feel who struggle with patterns of repeated sin, with patterns of addiction. This passage puts some actually really helpful imagery to likely what it feels like to somebody who's ensnared in sin, whether that be alcohol or substances, pornography or the praise of man. At some point, those hidden guilty pleasures become painful. They start to hurt deeper than we ever thought they would. And we end up in this cycle of repeated self-deception and self-destruction. And one day you look up and you're not having fun anymore. And you start to wonder, can I ever get out of this? Is there any hope for change? The sin that used to bring sort of this rush or thrill with it just feels oppressive now. It's not what I thought it was. You know, some of you in this room, you hear that language of shackles and chains in a dungeon And you might be saying, that's exactly what I feel like in my sin. I feel like I can't go anywhere. So what do you do when you're in a dungeon of your own making? What do you do when you built the prison that you're in? Well, notice what the text doesn't tell us to do. It doesn't tell us to hide. 
There's nothing in here about that. There's no hiding because of embarrassment or feeling like I've gone too far. I can't verbalize this to anyone else, and so I'm just going to kind of stay in the shadows. It also doesn't encourage us to cover up. It doesn't say, well, then the people clean themselves up really nice. They got a nice shower and a nice shave, and then they decided to call on the Lord, and because of that, the Lord answered them. No, it's not about making your good works then outweigh your bad works so that way you can get God in your pocket. The text doesn't say any of that. The passage tells us, cry out to God. And that's what these people did. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. We see the pattern again. Our need is expressed to God, and he meets that need with his mercy. Need, then mercy. I think some of us need to feel the shock of these last two stories. You know, the the first story that we read is kind of like, yeah, you know, I think the Lord's going to help them out because, you know, they just kind of fell on hard times. They were afflicted, having a bad day, you know. Maybe somebody made a silly mistake and that's why they got there. But we're talking about people in this passage who spurned God. They said, I don't want your word. I want to do it my way. But still, how does the passage go? They cried to the Lord, and before the sentence is even over, comma, mercy. He delivered them from their distress. It's that fast. You know, if you understand God to be holy, that sentence should almost offend you. Should bother you a little bit. It should unsettle you. Why does the author go that quick? That's definitely not how people act. Think about how we act. After somebody just totally wrecked themselves, you knew it was coming, you had warned them, they went ahead and did it anyway. And then finally, when they start coming, crawling back to you, you may not say it, but how does it go in your heart? Well, well, well. Look what the cat dragged up. No, 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 no. Let's, let's just sit in this for a little while. I'm, I'm going to enjoy this for a little while. Isn't that our instinct? Isn't that the way that we sort of naturally respond? That's not the way the Lord responds. He Acts. He rushes to them, comma, mercy. 
They bring their need. He is there. He is ready. Y'all, this is why we love the prodigal son story so much, isn't it? What's so shocking about the prodigal son story? I mean, the son is such a rebel. He's a terrible son. He's a shameful person. And then there's just this small, tiny, little inkling of a thought of, you know, I think I need to repent. I think I need to turn back to my father. And he comes to his father, and he starts going towards him, and his father hikes up his robes, and he starts running after him. He embraces him. He says, welcome home. He's telling everyone, look, I thought my son was dead, but he's here. He's alive. He's with me. Now, even for the person in this room whose sin would make you blush, for those who cry out to God and turn to Him truly, it's comma, mercy. And that's really why we're here this morning, isn't it? That's the whole reason we gather here, is to remember God's mercy to us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve His loving kindness. That steadfast love is unearned. It came to us. It sought us out. Even while we were at our worst, it sought us out and came to us and loved us into something lovable because of His loveliness. That's why we sing the song that we just sang. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's more, y'all. That's why we're here. That's why we're the glad people of God. Because God's mercy is more. So we've seen trouble come to those who are fainting. We've seen trouble come to those who are foolish. But what about when you don't really have a hand in any of it at all? When trouble comes, and it wasn't even because you did anything, it's just kind of life happening. The cancer diagnosis comes. The car just crashed. The divorce was finalized. The house burned down. Whatever those situations are, that this this wasn't a you thing. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond in that moment? That's where many of us may be this morning. Well, what does this psalm teach us? Well, point three, God's steadfast love and the fearful. God's steadfast love and the fearful. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. This is a bunch of sea merchants. They're they're traders. They're trading different commodities. That's really all that we know here, what's going on here. They're Likely, probably doing well, working hard, turning a nice profit, nothing good or bad 
about them, just going about their business, probably doing it well. And then it says, they saw the deeds of the Lord. Okay, well, how so? How did they see his deeds? Verse 25, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths and their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Why do they have a problem? Well, their problem is, of course, that there's this massive storm threatening their lives and they're losing their minds. It says that they're at their wit's end. The, the extent of their human wisdom is swallowed up and there's literally nothing that they can do to reverse the situation or get themselves out of the pickle that they're in. Well, why? Well, it's not because of them. It's not because of their sin, like we read in the last two stories. They're just selling stuff. Well, who's the cause then? Who's behind all of this? It's the Lord. What does it say? He commanded and raised up the stormy wind. You know, in the last story, God brings his loving discipline and pain because those people had rebelled against the words of God. But that's not what this story is. These people are going about their daily business. And then in the midst of all of that, God raises up this stormy wind. Interesting. You know, you might be thinking, did it just say that God caused that storm? I thought God calms the storm. God tells us in His Word that He does both of those things. The first one, calming the storm, I, I think we kind of all expect that one, don't we? We like hearing about the way that God calms the storm. But, but the, the second one, the, the one in this passage where God causes the storm, I don't know if all of us expected that one. Did you expect that one? Let, let me take just a little sidebar here. Can your theology support that? Can your theology handle the truth that God both causes the storms that He calms? It doesn't say that the devil did this. It says that God did this. What if God, 
in an effort to bring about something infinitely valuable in your life, your nearness to Him, your closeness to Him, your dependence on Him, what if He would be willing, even though it grieves Him, to introduce pain into your life? Can I tell you that that sentence will only make sense to you if your highest value is intimacy with God and not your own comfort. That's the only way that that will make sense to you. That sentence will utterly offend you if you don't see the highest value in the world as dependency and nearness to God. If you're primarily after your comfort, if you're primarily after your success, if you're primarily after your worldly status and the praise of people, you will not like this. You won't. You won't like this story. You won't like the thousands of other stories in the Bible like it. You know, there's only a couple of options of ways to respond to a passage like this. You can either, one, become a cynic. When you get to passages like these, you read it and think, well, if that's how God is, I don't have much of an interest in that God. That's not for me. I'm fine on my own. And and y'all, I have got friends, you probably do too, who have left the faith entirely because they can't stomach the thought that God causes the storms that He calms. You know, the problem, of course, with this cynical approach is that when you actually need rescue from the situation, you don't turn to the only one who can help you. You you don't turn to the true God of heaven who speaks to us in His Word and who comforts us by His Word and who acts for His people. Because you've resolved in your heart that you'll go anywhere else other than God Himself. Or you can take the second, also unbiblical approach, of being more of a stoic. What do I mean by that? Well, this one can sometimes sound a little more spiritual. You're essentially a fatalist. Maybe some of those more reformed-leaning Christians go this direction. You go down this road where you rightly understand that God is sovereign in all of His ways, but then you wrongly respond to His sovereignty with prayerlessness. We may just sort of think, well, you know, God's got it under control. Why does he need to hear from me? No need to pray. Just going to let God do his thing. He's got it. That might feel or sound spiritual, except that's not how God tells us to relate to him. 
That's entirely unbiblical. The Bible says both and. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign over every single molecule that's in this entire cosmos. He's sovereign over every event that will ever happen to you or to anyone else. And plead with Him. And beg Him. And ask Him for mercy. Because, y'all, if God is that sovereign, He doesn't just plan the ends. He's also sovereign over the means. And He may very well mean for you to pray for your lost friend. He may very well mean for you to pray for your mother, for your wayward child, for that sickness and suffering that's in your life. He may intend in His sovereignty for you to be a participant in His purposes through prayer. And by so doing, He changes you. He molds you. As you draw near to Him, He draws you nearer to Him. So the Christian response is not cynicism or stoicism. It's need. The Christian response is need and pleading with the Lord. That's exactly what these sailors do. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, and the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. They brought their need. God brought His mercy. And consequently, what comes out? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Y'all, here's the point. If you are in need today of anything, you are just one step away from having the God of the universe meet you with His steadfast love, to meet you with His mercy. That's the point of the song. You're one plea away from having the full weight of the steadfast love of God rush in and be foisted on you. Y'all, that's what our God does. He loves to save sinners. He loves to save His own. He loves to lavish His mercy. Do you have a record this morning? Like literally a record, a criminal record There is mercy for you if you would cry to Him. Do you feel like you're just up to your eyeballs in sin? Like you can't see anything because you can't see past the darkness? There is mercy for you if you would turn to Him. Have you been a hypocrite? Have you just sort of been playing religion, attending church, talking the talk? but not actually walking with Jesus, if you would turn to Him, there is mercy for you. Have you been a fool? Have you just made careless decision after careless decision? Been terrible with your money? Foolish with your parenting? Foolish in the way that you relate to your spouse? Lazy in your marriage? Y'all, there is mercy for you if you would cry to Him. 
That's why the psalm ends with these words. Verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say, let the wise people camp out in their past mistakes. Let the wise one be paralyzed with guilt. Let the wise one dwell on how dumb they feel. Let the wise one get themselves cleaned up so that way God will finally do something for them. Let the wise one get creative about ways to balance the scales a little bit so that way God will be on their team. No. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you want to meditate on something when you sin? Do you want to meditate on something when you struggle, when you have pain, when your child wanders from the faith, when you sin in the most embarrassing and shameful way that you don't feel like you can tell anyone? Well, don't meditate on you. Meditate on the steadfast love of God. Consider His love. Consider His steadfast, ever-faithful, never-changing, covenant-fulfilling, always-showing-up love. And where do we see that most powerfully? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where His arms were stretched out for us. His hands were nailed to the tree for us. As if to say, I know you've put me here. But my love is why I'm here. Your sin placed me here. But my love bound me to come here for you. For you. That's why I'm here. I'm here because I love you. Turn to me. Turn to me all the ends of the earth and you will be saved. I am your God. There is no other. I'm the one who died for you. I'm the one who was buried for you. I'm the one who was raised for you. I'm the one who is now interceding for you before the Lord Almighty. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. They have the Lord of the universe on their side. Why? Because of the steadfast love of God. And y'all, is that not reason enough for us to give thanks? Let's pray.